0: Hey, Stoner fans, people who listen to this show, Uh, we're back at you another Tuesday. This week, I talked to Samantha Miller. She's the head scientist at Humboldt. That's H-M-B-L-D-T, Humboldt, spelled like it's a startup, Humboldt. Um, Normally, I don't like to have people on this show who are selling something um, because their primary interest is in selling something. Uh, That said, I got the opportunity to talk to Samantha, and I had been sort of keeping my eye on the products that Humboldt was making, which are these vape pens that instead of being designed around a specific strain, they're designed around a specific effect, like sleep or bliss. Um, It seemed like a really thoughtful product and one that someone had put a lot of thought and research into Um, the idea of consistency and Crafting an experience for the individual is is definitely something. I'm interested in Um, so I thought I would talk to the person who made it She's incredibly generous with her time. She grew up in the uh, uh, Bay Area where all this stuff is happening and has been involved in this She had one of the first testing labs in the country, so she's really um An OG on the scene and has a lot to say about it. Samantha Miller, hello.
1: Hey, great to be with you today. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, Okay, so I want to set the scene slightly for people. You are the chief scientist at Humboldt. Humboldt spelled H-M-B-L-D-T, no vowels, which makes these pretty innovative uh, vape pens. Is that a fair summary of the product?
1: It's a great introduction. The, um, the Humboldt product is a dose-controlled vaporizer that has really specific formulations with precise amounts of cannabinoids and terpenes that are designed around, rather than say being uh, named Jack Herrera or Girl Scout cookies, are named around the specific benefits they're intended to give, like relief for pain relief or calm uh, for people who need to uh, maybe a little more centered and reduce their anxiety.
0: Just that like little jump of going from like purple bazooka bubblegum to sleep is a it's a pretty profound product choice.
1: It is, you know, and it's about provoking a conversation, really, you know, that that distinction and that that really clear differentiation. And the idea being that there's a lot of people out there who could benefit from cannabis as a therapeutic aid. These people who could benefit from cannabis may or may not have a relationship with it in the past. And when someone who doesn't have a relationship with it enters a scenario like a dispensary, a traditional dispensary these days, like the ones we have here in Northern California, where I am, it can be really overwhelming. And the flowers and concentrates with the strain-based name are difficult for people who aren't part of the culture to relate to. I mean, when you say Girl Scout cookies, that means a million things to me. <laughs>
0: right, right, right. But
1: to, just, yeah, but to someone who's never used cannabis, that doesn't mean anything. And so for those people, they need really clear and definite tools in their toolkit. And I think for the dispensary and for the patient consultant, it gives them something that is reliable and repeatable. Because part of the beauty about what we did in that design is create a process and formulations that are the same from batch to batch in terms of the amount of cannabinoids and the amounts and the types of terpenes. And so to be able to say, all right, two doses gives me the pain relief I need for four to six hours. And I can dial in that experience and I can repeat it. It's something that's really useful for people who are looking to manage and support their quality of life and wellness with cannabis.
0: Yeah. uh, Just in my limited experience of interviewing people on the show, it seems like people come in the door sort of clear on the effect they want, and then they're using a weird set of approximations to map that to a strain, which is kind of a, a backwards way of thinking about it in a way.
1: It is, but, you know, I mean, until things like the product that we came out with from Humboldt, there's there's not a whole lot of tools in the toolkit of the patient. You know, and, and that's one of the reasons why in the past, you know, in the early 1900s and such, that cannabis fell out of use was because it was, found to be inconsistent because it was difficult to predict results or to have reliable and repeatable results. And that's the thing I think that's so important, right, about people coming to cannabis for the first time is that they're successful because when they're not successful, they may be turning away from one of the only non-toxic therapeutic alternatives they have.
0: What were your first experiences with cannabis like?
1: Well, you know, I, growing up here in Northern California, I like to say, you know, you're somewhat born into it. <laughs> <laughs> So it was definitely something that was ever present in my life, and uh, and for me, I tended to be somewhat of an alternative soul, uh, shall we say, as a youth. And uh, it was kind of a natural progression for me to experiment with cannabis from a personal use perspective. So my first experience with it, I believe, I was fourteen years old, and I was quite an enthusiast uh, from the very beginning. And so uh, my relationship with cannabis, you know, is is fairly long. Uh, about twenty five years or so, and uh, as soon as I uh, you know experienced it for the first time, very shortly after that, I started cultivation and uh, you know it was uh, it was an interesting moment, it was an interesting time where uh, cannabis was very present in the culture, but it was still had a high level of stigma, and there was quite a, a law enforcement presence around saving off the use of cannabis in youth. and then you know, as I progressed in my adult life, you know I had an opportunity uh, somewhat serendipity. Of looking to open a cannabis laboratory, uh, one of the first ones here in the United States, and it wasn't something I was really looking for. It was something that kind of found me. And uh,
0: how does something like that find you? So, well, like, <laughs> I assume at this point you have a chemistry degree, or someone wouldn't be looking for you for this. Yes. What 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 led you to chemistry yeah, in the first place?
1: Well, you know, it was always, uh, you know, science was always in my realm of interest. It was either I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, I, was, that was, I, I, had, I had two choices uh, in, my, in my mind as a youth. Uh, my mom was a clinical scientist, uh, was part of uh, my inspiration for pursuing the sciences. When I started college, I didn't really know what I necessarily wanted to do, although I knew I wanted to be successful and, and, I, and I wanted to make a lot of money, as, as most young people do. <laughs> That's about all I knew. And I quickly found um, how much I loved understanding how things worked. Uh, and developed in a passion for biochemistry, which is what uh, my educational background is in. And during my studies, uh, I engaged in a lot of uh, research in my academic career around the development of pro-drugs for cancer and AIDS pharmaceuticals. And I, in those moments, I really noticed that it mattered to me what I did. Uh, it mattered to me what the, the end result, what the ultimate contribution of my work was. And so I focused on that. And after I left uh, academia, I went into the world of environmental forensics and spent a lot of time looking at uh, the aftermath of all the horrible things we've done to the environment. And uh, at a certain point, I also learned that uh, technology and innovation was something that I had a capability for, of taking things apart and putting them back together. So the various uh, you know, pieces of uh, of equipment in our laboratory that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, I could I could fix them, I could add things onto them, I could reprogram them, I could do all kinds of things with them. And so I went to go work for the technology company uh called IDEX Corporation and a subunit of it called Rheodyne that makes the enabling technologies for a lot of the equipment uh, that's in my laboratory today. And ultimately I continued my product development career uh in the semiconductor area developing a couple of lines of LED lighting uh for another company. And that was uh kind of where I landed um in this moment of opportunity where a a friend from high school uh, called me up and said, Hey Samantha, you know, I know you're a scientist and uh look, I'm being hired to do this marketing uh campaign, branding campaign for a dispensary uh in Sonoma County and they want to buy a piece of equipment and put it in the back of the dispensary and test their cannabis. And I said, That's crazy. I was like, I've never (laughs) I've never heard of that. And by the way, if you're gonna spend that much money on that piece of equipment you need to like hire a scientist with it because if you don't uh you're going to destroy the piece of equipment because they're sensitive and, and they require special care so i told them this and they didn't listen to me of course and so they went out and they spent all the money on the piece of equipment and then a few months later they called me and said okay all right, you're right. We destroyed it. <laughs> Can you come take a look and see what we did? And so I said, sure. And I, and I, I took some time and I went over and, and I said, well, you know, you've done about seven or eight thousand dollars worth of damage. And I know somebody who could fix this for you. And I'd be happy to call them out and have them fix this for you. But if you don't hire scientists, it's just going to happen again. And as Spencer, under she like, looks at me, and she rolls her eyes, and she's like, "I am sick of this thing." She's like, "Why don't you just do something with it?" And I said, "When I just do something with it, I'm like, I got a nice job in a corner office, <laughs> it's a great salary, I'm, I'm climbing the ladder, you know. I'm, uh, I'm not really looking, <laughs> uh-huh. you know. But thanks, though. I don't know what I would do with that." And so, and strangely, you know, it stuck with me. And I went home that night, and uh, as I was uh, sitting there and, and probably vaporizing some cannabis, I started sketching out an idea of what that. Would be and and I kind of looked around on the internet and uh, there was uh, one other lab uh, that existed in the U.S. at that time out in Colorado and uh, oh that's interesting okay so there's somebody else doing this like, well, that's fascinating so people are testing cannabis I'm like huh
0: what year are we in uh, when there's only in one testing a, lab
1: Uh late two thousand nine
0: okay so when these first medical laws were coming into place there was no real testing apparatus to piggyback on oh the medical yeah. laws um, because there's no lab. I mean, I'm assuming if there's no labs, there's no testing.
1: Not only was were people not testing, they'd never even heard of the concept. And so, you know, we were all, you know, in this really, you know, wide open field where when I initially did sales for our company, when we first opened in early 2010, we were beating the bushes, going door to door, selling our services, so to speak. And people would say, you're doing what? You want me to pay for what? stuff is killer. It's never killed anybody. Why would I pay you? I mean, that was really the attitude. And, you know, what's fascinating to me is, is doors that I knocked on uh, five and six years ago who laughed at the idea of testing are people who, you know, they're all about the scientific integrity of their program and the, and the quality control of their programs today. It's, it's an amazing progression in a, in a very short period of time. So, yeah, the, the market back then was, was not only nascent, it was non-existent.
0: As someone who had that background in environmental science and laboratory, laboratory technique, when you're sitting at home at this point and you've got your vape pen or you're, you know, picking up an eighth from a friend and you're looking at these kind of untested products, what did you think? Like, wh- what was your mind curious about? What what goes through a scientist's mind when they look at that? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, what's fascinating was, you know, as I was getting my education as a biochemist, I was also growing cannabis the whole time and breeding cannabis. And so it was interesting. I would I would learn things in my my I loved botany. It was fantastic in plant physiology. I learned a lot. Uh, And I would start to apply techniques to, you know, I I was a very nascent indoor grower. So my first indoor grow was 25 years ago. And let's just say the equipment wasn't that great. And so you had to be pretty innovative to do things like smell control to balance your nutrients properly. And so, you know, interestingly back then, it never really crossed my mind regarding safety other than the things that I would put on cannabis I was growing myself. Most of what I consumed, I grew myself. And so it was just a completely different frame of reference. And, it's, and I reflect on that inflection point uh, for myself, which was in about 2010, when my relationship with cannabis where my point of view around cannabis shifted from one around personal use to one around therapeutic applications and the implications around the use of the material in that context. And it causes an enormous paradigm shift, things that are, what's okay, right? What's in the realm of acceptable.
0: So... In about 2010, you start doing your own testing. That company becomes Pure Analytics. And then after that, you start working with Humboldt, taking some of that testing with you. When you first started to run tests, what did you think would be interesting to look at beyond the is there mold in it and how high is the THC basics?
1: You know, in the beginning, I collected a lot of data uh, about growing conditions. And then we also mapped physical characteristics like gland density, coloration in terms of amber coloration, opacity versus clarity. We looked at indoor versus outdoor grown uh, data. So I've been fascinated by uh, the diversity of cannabinoids, uh, the expression of cannabinoids in plants. And uh, it continues to be a source of my fascination uh, where I've been working with, uh, you know, about 140 farmers for the last six years uh, to do unique strain development and isolation. And so the proliferation of CBD strains that you see around Northern California is due in large part uh, to the use of this program through Pure Analytics. So strains like Sour Tsunami, harlasu, canasu are uh, a of the work uh, in our laboratories. Um, you know, in 2010, uh, we had two high CBD strains that were identified and, and readily available in California, not in clone form, but the flowers themselves. After our first year of work with Southern Humboldt Seed Collective and a couple of other growers, there were over 80 variants of CBD also in seed form available in California. So that cannabinoid research uh, that we spent so much time on uh, definitely translated into the formulations that I ultimately developed for Humboldt.
0: So let's talk about this formulation. So you currently make four pens, uh, sleep, bliss, relief. And I'm forgetting one. What's the fourth one?
1: And calm. And we actually have oh, two calm. more. We have, Oh, newbies. Uh, two, we have two sexual wellness uh, formulations, passion and arouse as well.
0: Okay. So when you get tasked with, we're going to develop, let's say, the initial set of four or six. What did you start thinking about as to how to, to build these formulations? One of the things that I found the most interesting about reading about your research online is, is how much you valued anecdotal sort of responses from people who used it, not purely lab numbers. So what was that research task like and how did you set up?
1: You know, with, with developing the formulations, I drew on a variety of sources of information to develop my initial hypotheses, from uh, literature, published literature and research, to my own database uh, of analytics, to kind of patient anecdotal information about responses to specific strains that I happen to have the analytics for.
0: When you do that kind of like research, are you able to note the person who's giving the sort of anecdotal response what their baseline of cannabis usage is? Because... I- Personally, what I've found in talking to people a lot for the show is that a lot of times when you go on like a strain base or something like that, most of the people responding are extremely hardcore users and you're not necessarily getting like much of a look at like, hey, if this is like a once a month thing, how will this feel for you?
1: Right. Which is why that can only be a starting point. It, it can only be, you know, um, a weather vane. So I develop my initial hypotheses, and then I actually develop the opposite of my hypothesis, so to speak.
0: How do you and how the, do you do the opposite of your hypotheses? Descri- describe what that process is like.
1: Ah, so for example, uh, what I mean by that is, if my initial hypothesis say is a THC dominant formulation, then I'll try a CBD dominant formulation in a similar ratio, uh, inverse ratio of THC and CBD.
0: How did you so come around to about, this it, it, idea of? Ah uh, THC CBD uh, sort of ratio being the primary metric.
1: Well, in terms of the responses that we've measured in our endocannabinoid system, those two cannabinoids have the most direct effects for the specific uh, different uh, issues or ailments that we're trying to affect. Uh, so CBD and THC are great around different concerns for pain relief, uh, around sleep, CBD for anxiety, for example.
0: How did you decide on at this point six pens? I mean, you walk into a dispensary now, and there's got to be 100 described effects possible,
1: or more, or I more, maybe
0: more than. I, I mean, someone's <laughs> definitely using the thesaurus before starting with the with the whiteboard at a lot of them, and and in a lot of ways, I, I think some of the effects can feel a little bit like leading the witness. But for you, um, you know, you're sitting on this huge, huge data set. Why boil that data set into six pens?
1: So the the first thing I did really conceptually was, you know, I turned to my experience from my educational seminar series, which is something um, that I've done for the last seven years, where I've taught uh, groups of patients around Northern California about cannabinoid therapeutics. And in the process of getting that seminar, I also had a lot of interactions with a lot of patients and people talking to me about how cannabis changed their lives and. And what were the things where they really saw just an amazing shift in their quality of life and their wellness? In addition to that, something that I always felt really strongly about in my educational series was that I presented fact-based information that was verified by research. So these four areas, bliss, calm, sleep, and relief, and then later on, passion, aroused in the area of sexual wellness are all areas where there is a wealth of formal research, both animal model uh, and patient population research that's been collected uh, to say that THC and CBD have efficacy around these given issues. And So um, I said about um, making a correlation of what are the primary uses of cannabis, you know, that are supported by this type of information. And, and those became, you know, top of the list, so to speak. I think probably in the, in the patient's groups that I speak to, pain is probably number one uh, usage of cannabis. Um, sleep is probably the next one. You know, what was really amazing to me was when I started the research uh, into the background for um, the use of cannabis for sexual arousal and also the enhancement of the sexual experience, there was almost more uh, research and historical record data in that area than any other one, Uh, which I suppose for some reason surprised me. I guess not, though. It shouldn't. When I talk about it, it seems like that's what everybody's using it for. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised.
0: You could... Forgive someone if they were an archaeologist a hundred years from now for thinking that based on the research around marijuana, that, you know, things like pain relief, PTSD were the primary drivers of interest. However, for me and for a lot of the people I talk to, the primary use case for marijuana is getting high. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. I've talked to have kind of a side pot in like, oh, I have menstrual cramps and I like to smoke weed then. Or, you know, if I have trouble sleeping, I might smoke a joint. But probably those things would not individually drive them to say, oh, always have marijuana on hand. It's sort of like a, a happy byproduct. So I'm curious what your research says for people who just kind of generally enjoy the marijuana experience. Like for someone like me, I'll look at what strain I'm smoking. But honestly, except for a few times when it's been like an insane couch lock or a a speeding racing high, most marijuana feels about the same to me. What do you say to someone who's had that kind of an experience? Well,
1: I think that the thing that you always have to allow for cannabis is the individual experience. And it's something that you can't negate because yours is different than somebody else's, for example. And I think there's a tendency to do that. But that's the amazing thing about cannabis is that for a given population of people, you have this amazing spectrum of possible outcomes of their experience. What I think for someone like yourself, what can be cool about a line like the humble formula line is you have, say, a spectrum of formulas. You have high THC formulas like Bliss, you have balanced formulas like relief that's like got twice as much THC as C B D, but you know, fairly equal amounts, and high C B D products like Calm. I find that when I make that range of formulations available to a given person, they have the ability to kind of dial in their experience and dial Mm -hmm. in their day, kind of optimize themselves for whatever they're about to do. I think as a senior group that I use for consumer testing at Humboldt, who I gave a panel of formulations to from high THC to high CBD, and they start reporting to me, uh, even after we're done with the consumer trial, what they're doing uh, with the remaining formulations he's like, so I'm, I'm getting ready for yoga. So I'm using my like two to one, you know, relief formulation. And now I'm getting ready for rock climbing. So I'm going to, I want to focus myself. So I'm going to use my calm pen. And, uh, and now I'm getting ready, you know, to, you know, for the end of the day. So I'm going to use my high THC, uh, bliss pen to kind Wait of dial minute. in that.
0: Experience. Where did you find these seniors?
1: This is Sonoma County. So I've got a group of it's like, fi- it's like 50 to 100 seniors. They're between 66 and 88. And they're a cultivation group. They're fantastic. And, uh, and they are some avid cannabis enthusiasts.
0: Wow. This sounds like a documentary yeah. in its own right.
1: They are fantastic. I love them. They are, they are fantastic. But I see that, you know, in, you know, millennial uh, generation, I see that desire to want to dial in the experience. And I think, you know, man, none of us have any time. I don't have time to waste on a high I don't want. <laughs> sure. And
0: neither do you. Well, that I mean, that the, the consistency is a really interesting element to me because I, I generally favor consistent experiences. I love the taste of Diet Coke. I don't want someone's artisanal local Diet Cola. I actually just like the Diet Coke. And I can see how if you knew you were having a totally consistent experience with, say, a pen, that in some ways frees you up to analyze your experience more because you know you're not Totally imagining the differences. Like, wh- how do people describe their experiences to you? That's really interesting to me. So
1: we use standardized survey formats ah. to make sure that we can get standardized data uh, that we can, you know, apply uh, a statistical analysis to. But in addition to that, I always allow room for open-ended self-reporting. I always say that's where the magic is. So I look at the softer and of self-reported nuance to help explain and, and give color to the statistical results.
0: In the period that you've been working professionally in this industry, how has your personal experience changed? Is it still fun for you? Is it a job?
1: You know, it's been a journey. I think there's been a lot of parts of the journey. There were times where it really wasn't a lot of fun. You know, there were times when uh, when the federal letters went out. I think that was 2011. It's all kind of a continuum. I think that was 2011, 2012. There were 180 dispensaries in the greater Sacramento area. I think we might be back up to 20-something. I mean, that was like, there was some destruction and mayhem. I remember uh, Berkeley Patients Group uh, was standing in my office, and we were negotiating a testing contract. And one of the fellows had to step out. He stepped back in and said, "We have to go. We just got our letter," and they got shut down. There was a, there was a lot of times there were you, know, you wondered what was going to happen. So it's been a journey, and I would say, you know, the uh, the testing market has been one that has at times not been a fun one to participate in. It's for some reason. Uh, been one where there's been an extraordinary level of competition, uh, as there were very few dollars, uh, so to speak, to spread amongst the competitors as there was a very slow rate of adoption of testing. And I'd say there's times where I fell out of love and fell in love with the industry, you know, and uh, when I fell out of love with it, you know, my my, my heart would hurt. But, uh, you know, I'm so in love with it uh, today and where we're headed.
0: Are you still um, a user yourself?
1: Oh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In the twenty-five years since I the first day I used cannabis, uh, that use has been interrupted uh, very infrequently. Like there was one job I had to do a year analysis for, so yeah, but not other than that, no.
0: Do you use your own products, or do you experiment uh, a field?
1: You know, I um, I actually purchase cannabis from the dispensaries that I test for. Oh. I think it's important to know where your cannabis comes from and to have traceability on on how it's handled.
0: In terms of that consistency of experience, do you think that that kind of consistency will ever be achieved um, with flowers or is an oil that's very precisely blended actually the only way to sort of give that kind of an effect? I
1: mean, you can achieve consistency uh, from a cultivated flower perspective. However, uh, when you start to look at, say, over 100 cannabinoids in every analysis, the amount of Flower to flower variation becomes very apparent. So you can normalize on a macro perspective, say a THC and CBD perspective, but it's very difficult to normalize minor cannabinoids and terpene profiles. Um, I think that that seems to be the the realm or the niche that uh, formulated oil products will hold in the cannabis marketplace in the U.S. And actually, people seem to be enjoying. Uh, The variability in flowers as I think people turn to one or the other for a variety of different
0: reasons. What's it like as an old school Bay Area person to see this kind of uh, new wave of business and money and culture coming in, Um, some of it investors from the outside? I don't know. How does it feel someone who was growing weed 25 years ago, clandestinely, um, to be amidst all of the um, mega uh, cow palace uh, conventions and that kind of stuff?
1: It's a strange mixture of feelings. I have nostalgia for what was, for sure, because it was a moment in time that will never be again. Uh, There's a, a criminal culture associated with it that has some strange kind of Wild West allure to the, uh, the edgy alternative subculture person in me. But, you know, if I also had a part of my career that was big corporate, so I, I get all sides of it, which is kind of an interesting spot to sit in. But it does make me satal- nostalgic for what once was. It makes me also proud and amazed at what we've done and what we've turned this into. I think that the one thing I'm concerned about is that it once represented the only way that people uh, could live outside their paycheck uh, in the middle class in this area. I hope that the level of regulation uh, that's happened hasn't prevented that from being an option for people. So I hope that we get it right. I guess that's where I sit.
0: Where do you see things going from here? I mean, it's kind of incredible to think that That moment you described earlier when there was uh, two or three testing labs in the country was less than a decade ago. What do you think we can achieve in the next decade and the decades to come? Where do you see things going?
1: We're going to do so many amazing things. We're going to eliminate the opioid crisis.
0: We are going to
1: eliminate the scourge of brain trauma from impact been uh, professional sports uh, and just in general, we are going to make amazing advances in the elimination of pharmaceutical agents from our therapeutic regimens that cause horrible side effects and replace them with things that our body sees as natural constituents in alignment with its own chemistry. I think that we're in a pivot point actually of an amazing transition around a focus on wellness and caring about what we put in our bodies, and I think that cannabis is a natural partner on that journey as a society in America, and I think that will be an amazing place to go. In terms of cannabis on its own, gosh, it's, it's hard to even fathom uh, where we're going to be, but you know, one of the places we're going to land, uh, personalized medicine, the alignment of the genome of the plant, the genome of the patient, and the genome of the disease uh, that work uh, is in its very beginning stages and will be an amazing horizon of cannabis innovation.
0: I hope all your predictions come true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at the end of the <laughs> show. <laughs> at the end of the show, um I usually do a little um, uh, questionnaire. It's called Peak Experiences Peak experience. We ask the quest. Um, OK, first question. What is your favorite way to enjoy marijuana?
1: Uh, I vaporize flour. I use a water pipe with a hand-blown uh, fluted glass bowl that fits a thermostated heat gun and uh, some premium cannabis uh in that uh in that hand blown glass bowl and then you force the uh the air from the heat gun through that which forces it through the water in the water pipe. The best vaporization experience in my opinion.
0: How did you hit upon that technique?
1: That is totally old school. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is if you were
0: You were born if you like were that
1: vaporizing yeah, I was born like that. If you were vaporizing 20 years ago, it was either the uh, the Vapor Brothers box or um, the V-Rip tech on the water pipe. And if you're a big joint smoker, nothing beats a V-Rip tech if you want to vaporize.
0: Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've had kind of poor success with vapor. Do you find that among people that you study, that there's people who just don't enjoy the effect of vaping as compared to sort of general joint combustion?
1: Yeah, you know, I had the same problem initially, honestly when I first started vaporizing, it was because I was just constantly having bronchitis and I associated it with smoking because I smoked a lot of pot. And, um, and I was like, I'm committed to making a transition. And I Mm -hmm. was, but when I first started vaporizing, I wasn't having the same experience. And it wasn't until a few weeks in that I actually found it satisfactory. So it was like, I had to acclimate, uh, uh, to the transition. And now strangely, I don't enjoy smoking.
0: Huh. What were your initial vaping experiences where it didn't work like?
1: Oh, gosh. There was this one that was supposed to work off of your car lighter. And it was this little glass tube and the two parts slid together. And it was like a one hitter. And you were supposed to use your car lighter with it. And that so didn't work. Um, and <laughs> so then wait, I found the This was a thing. vaporizer product that you were
0: only supposed to use in your car because there's no other place where there's a cigarette lighter like that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's
0: true. Yes. Uh, heard <laughs> FDA, I wonder what the FDA would think about that. <sighs> okay. Second question. Tell me about one place you visited that was very uh, memorable or special to you.
1: There's uh, one of my special places. It's a place called Compchi that is in the mountains of Mendocino. And when I was a young girl, all I cared about was horses. And so I went to horseback riding camp up in the mountains of Mendocino, and you slept outside for weeks at a time. You did eight hours of horseback riding lessons every day. And it was the first time where I like lived in the forest because you literally did. There's no tents or anything like that. And I was when I, I think the first time I went is when I was 11. And that was when I discovered in myself, the girl who had always lived in suburbia, that I really didn't want to live in a town and that I belonged in the forest. And so today I live in the forest
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Since it's now legal for you to do this, I think I can ask, how much weed do you generally grow like at a given time?
1: You know, I actually had to stop growing a oh. couple of years ago uh, with the laboratory and everything else. It just became too much, and I live in the forest, and so the powdery mildew and spider mites is really just hard. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> what do you think the experience of, of being someone who enjoys weed is like um, when you grow? Do you think growing can enhance the experience for people? Yeah,
1: I don't think you like... I mean, if you've never grown it, I don't think you totally get it. It's such an amazing plant, you know, and, uh, you know, the transition and appearance uh, from when you're in full fluorescence uh, to a cured bud, I mean, it doesn't even look like the same thing. You can have these fluorescent pink hair, you know, uh, stigmas, and then they turn into something totally different when it's, when it's dried and cured. So I think like actually getting to see how amazing the plant is in full fluorescence is truly an experience. But also that it's not trivial to grow good cannabis. I mean, it's not. Uh, and, and it's really easy to grow really not good cannabis. And I think that if you try to grow it, uh, it gives you an all new respect.
0: Can you recommend a stoned viewing experience? Movie, TV, could be new, could be something from the past.
1: Oh, yeah. So for all the millennials out there, uh, they have to see The Money Tree. Uh, the Money Tree was a movie that came out he was in the. It was it had to be the '80s, and it was actually funded uh, by a, a cannabis grow. And there's characters in the movie that are actually characters in the cannabis industry movement today, like Charlie Pappas, uh, who is the owner of Divinity Tree, and who actually uh, Charlie's house was the first place in California that you could get a California cannabis recommendation from Todd McCaria, who was the only doctor in California who was giving them out then. So, uh, in the Money Tree. It shows the moment uh, where Charlie was shot. He's a paraplegic now uh, over a, uh, a deal gone bad. It's an incredible historical record of what actually the scene really was.
0: Do you have a favorite snack?
1: That's dangerous. Right now, so I'm, I have a cookie problem. My, fa- my current favorite cookie is from a place called Rustic Bakery that's here in the Bay Area. And they make a Valrona chocolate shortbread with cocoa nibs and sea salt. That's like the most gourmet half of an Oreo chocolate, half of an Oreo cookie that you ever had.
0: (laughs) You're going to a desert island. You're allowed to bring uh, one album with you to uh, play for the rest of your life. Weed grows on this island. Usually I say that it's the native format of um, whenever your like music listening prime was. So I don't know, maybe a tape, one tape, one tape or CD. That's
1: really a tough one. Yeah. It would be it would be really old Bob Marley. That's what it would be.
0: A lot of people respond um with a tape that was like in their last car that had a tape deck. I feel like that sometimes is a good cutoff where you've really, really known one object well. Final question. Um, what is something that you are still looking forward to um in life? What's what's a big thing on the horizon for you?
1: Well, I turned forty this year. That's a big one. And uh and I would still in terms of Big things yet to come. Besides that, I still, I still might have a child. I think that's something that uh, is is on the table uh, and would definitely be life changing. Uh, we've been married for sixteen years. We just started talking about it.
0: <laughs> wow! <laughs>
1: um, so, so, but that'll be that's my personal horizon.
0: Oh, right on. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah. For people who are interested in checking out the fruits of your research. My understanding is that Humboldt is only available in California.
1: That's correct. We're in uh, well over 200 dispensaries. If you go on the website, hmbldt.com, there's a store locator. uh, And there's lots of delivery services that carry it as well, from Ease uh, to Sava, uh, and definitely a ton of delivery services down in SoCal as well. So a ton of ways to get it right to your door.
0: How long does, like, let's say for someone who, who's a once-a-day uh, person, how long does one of these pens last?
1: Oh, it can last a really long time. Uh, each pen has 200 doses in it. So if you're only using, say, two doses a day, uh, that's 100 days.
0: Excellent. Um, well, thank you so much, and uh, I'm definitely keeping uh, keeping tabs on your research. So. It's
1: great talking to you, and I look forward to uh, talking with you again.
0: And that was Stoner. We have a new show for you every Tuesday. This episode was edited by Courtney Harrell. All our visual branding is by Mickey Dujay. Uh, our associate producer is Justine Dom. Um, if you want to send me an email, you can hi hi at stoner.co. Promise that I will reply. Um, I would also like to say that this show kind of has to spread by word of mouth, uh, we don't do a lot of marketing. And um, it's kind of an acquired taste. So if you know someone who would like the taste of this show, please tell them about it. All you have to say is put Stoner in whatever podcast app you've got. The show is there. We're trying to make it something big. Please give us some help. Thank you.